Did, and did Steve uh, mention Paul and Bernice's 60? You did? Okay, good. I, I didn't want Paul storming the pulpit. 60 years and not a single mention. Two mentions. Well done, Paul, but especially well done, Bernice. <laughs> we praise the Lord for that. It was uh, exciting this morning at Faith. I know this is a small thing, but um, Tammy actually put Faith Church Surrey on Google Maps yesterday, and I saw it because for some reason I was looking up maps, and I was like, oh, there it is as well. We're, we are, the empire is beginning, and uh, a young lady who isn't a Christian but just started reading her Bible looked on and walked into church today and came, and it was just really exciting to see um, something like that happen. So uh, I've forgotten her name now. Brian, what? Aaron. Of course, the young single guy knows her name. <laughs> uh, it's just a test. I knew it was Aaron. Well done, Brian. Who knows, right? Who knows? Um, so yeah, pray for Aaron that uh, she would return. Of course, you can imagine people storming her, uh, but that's fine. Um, so we are going to be looking at some psalms today. Uh, if, if we become a mega church, what I'm going to have to do is do the uh, um, summer psalms series, right? Every time, there's always got to be some sort of series. So friendship and faith in the fall series, and you kind of, that's what you have to do. So if I start doing all those gimmicks, you'll know that we are growing and I'm having to, to keep you entertained with nice little titles. But uh, I preached a few psalms, and they seem to go well. I got one compliment last week, a text message from someone, and it was nice. I thought, you know, I'm going to keep a hot streak alive, um, and so stick with the psalms. So we're going to be in Psalm 40 this morning, and then tonight I'm looking at Psalm 16, um, which is, a, they're both glorious psalms. So Psalm 40, I'm going to read from verse 1 to the end. This is a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord... You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. 
For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let us ask for God to bless his word, read and preached. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We know that your word can soothe and comfort and it can save our lives as it were, for your word is the word of life. And so we pray you will save our lives as we hear your word preached. For Jesus' sake, amen. Those of you who have children, or maybe you are a child, you will know there's a usual order in which children, when they want something from their parents, go about getting something. So uh, if my son wants a pair of uh, shoes, a nice pair of, of shoes, he doesn't say, um, I would like some Air Jordans. Could you buy them for me? And then after that, go, oh yes, and I would like to um, clean and vacuum and do this and that because the order's all wrong. I have uh, children where, you know, one comes flying by with a mop, another one with a vacuum, and, and harmony is brought to the household, and there's real work being done, and my wife and I say, okay, what does Katie want? <laughs> what does Josh want? Uh, and uh, it even can rise to the occasion of uh, your child listening to one of your sermons on Spotify and texting you about all that they had learned from the sermon that you had preached. This happened last week. And I thought, okay, Barb, this is going to be big because I'm getting a rundown of a sermon on Luke 23 and how convicted she was and all of this. And I thought, I bet she's going to ask me to drive her to Alaska. And actually, one of the great moments of my life as a parent was that she didn't ask for anything. It was a legit sermon. That's a, that's a digression. Most of the time, there's an order. You butter your parents up, and then you try to get something out of them. In Psalms, you have a usual order. There's a problem that the psalmist experiences, is in the moment experiencing, and they ask God to deliver them, and there's usually a deliverance. And so the order goes from crisis to deliverance. But this psalm works a little bit differently. It actually inverts things in a matter of speaking. In fact, in the first sort of ten verses, David is looking back upon a past deliverance that God has enabled for him. And then he moves from verse 11 to 17 to a present crisis he is in and asking for a resolution to that, but you don't get the final resolution in a certain sense, but in another sense you do. So 
why is that? Well, notice David begins by saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. And there's not two different words there. I waited patiently, as you see in the English. The idea, and it forcefully hits you in the Hebrew, is I waited, I waited, I waited. It is an emphasis of the same word to bring about like truly, truly, I waited, I waited. Pure gold is not pure gold. It is gold, gold. So here it is, I am waiting, I am waiting, I am waiting. But this is a past experience. He inclined to me, and, and I would even say that God inclining to David, it's better to say he stooped down and bent over to me because the idea is one of the God of heaven and earth seeing somebody in a particular locale, and you will see that that locale is a pit, and he has to stoop down. It is an act of gracious condescension where David waited and waited, and God bends over and stoops down, and he hears David's cry. Now, where was David? Well, he was in the pit of destruction. He was in a miry bog. And these pits have a rich biblical theological uh, storyline going back to Joseph, where when you were put in a pit or a well or a cistern, it was a life or death scenario. You see the case of Jeremiah, and you can't help but have your heartbreak for what Jeremiah went through. He was placed in a cistern, and a cistern in the ancient Near Eastern context was not a sort of place where you go down and then you sort of climb your way out. It was a a narrow funnel, and then it would open up at the bottom. And so when you're down in the bottom, you can't just climb out. There's nowhere to grab onto. And there was no water in there for him to sort of tread water and come up. It was a miry bog. And so Jeremiah is basically in a place where he's going to die. And the way he's delivered from that pit is not by climbing out, not by his own strength. He's helpless. And he has to be brought out through those old rags that deliver him. Now, David is saying he was in, at one time in his life, a life or death situation. But we're not told exactly what that is. To be honest, I don't think we can know. You can guess based on David's life what it may have been. But there's something quite valuable in David saying he was in a pit and God delivered him. Just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that a thorn in his flesh was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing revelations that he had received from God. But are we told explicitly what that thorn in his flesh was? The answer is no. We can guess. It may be his eyesight. It may be uh, a messenger of Satan, a false teacher who tried to ruin his ministry. We don't really know. And it's good that we don't really know because the human tendency is to look at what David may have gone through, to look at what Paul may have gone through and said, well, that doesn't compare to what I'm going through. So it is a general statement about a pit of despair, of destruction, of helplessness. And David is saying, God rescued me from this pit in the past. And because of that, he praises God. Look, he put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. 
And so David praises God because of a past deliverance. In fact, not only that, but he also focuses upon how others are helped. So it wasn't just about David. He talks about how God also blesses other people. And there's a key verse here that we'll focus on a little bit later in verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So because David at one point in his life was delivered by God, it is shaping his current attitude towards God in his present distress. Now notice, what is the proper response to a past deliverance? Verses 6 to 8 tell us, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but... You have given me an open ear. Now that sounds a bit strange to the present day person. You have given me an open ear. What does that mean, an open ear? Well, the Hebrews actually, you've given me a dug out ear. You've dug out my ear. But then we have to say, well, what does that mean? And the answer may have something to do with the person who becomes a slave in Exodus chapter 21 and because their master who has treated them so well, uh, has been a blessing to them. They say at the end of the time of their slavery, because they've become bankrupt, they've had to try and get themselves out of bankruptcy, they love their master and they say, no, I want to stay with you, I want to serve you, you are a good master. And so the idea was that you would get an ear piercing and your ear would be uh, pierced through the wall of the house to show your identity with this household. So there's an open ear, so to speak. Or it could mean simply that his ear has been opened because he is going to now live a life of obedience to God. So you have given me an open ear is the idea that you have given me a life where I'm going to receive from you your commandments and I'm going to obey you. And that's the proper response to deliverance. When do the Ten Commandments happen? Exodus chapter 20, after God has delivered them out of bondage. That is the order. It is always the order. You obey God based upon his deliverance. And so David is given an open ear. Now what's interesting is the language of an open ear is the language that we see written of the servant in Isaiah chapter 50. And that servant is our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite sections in all of God's word, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. When God opens someone's ear, it is God teaching that person instructing that person and that person being receptive to that. So that's what David is speaking about in this psalm, that the proper response to deliverance is to obey God, and David is claiming that he has done so. I delight, verse 8, to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And that word for heart is actually probably better Your word is in my bowels. If you have the King James, it may even say my bowels. Um, 
because the bowels is like the inner part of the person. If you really want to get to how a person is so consumed with God, you speak about the inner parts of their guts. Your word is in my guts. It is in my heart. It permeates me. This is David. So what does he do? Because he has been delivered, and because he now promises obedience to God, he then publicly proclaims God's goodness in verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. In different cultures, we have different responses and how we express ourselves. Uh, you know, the British... Uh, it would be interesting, I don't think this is a nice thought, but you know, if a plane was going down and was in some distress, you put Italians on the right side of the plane and you put British people on the left side of the plane, and you just take a video, you know, and the British would be like, well, five minutes from now we could be in a bit of trouble. Um, you know, the Italians going crazy and, uh, and who knows uh, what other um, types of people you might want to find. I can just see uh, Mike Chilo being and Tom, normal people, but you know, the other guys, right? Um, people are different. There's different ways in which we express ourselves. Uh, you see this in the way people even play sports or do business and things like that. But there's something about being a Christian that there's not really a, a negotiation here. As a Christian, you don't get to say, well, you know, I'm going to keep things to myself. No, Christians have to declare God's praise. Christians have to publicly proclaim who God is and what He's done. That's why you're here. You are in the great congregation and you are telling of the glad news of deliverance when you sing. That is why you don't stay home. When you stay home and don't come to church unless providentially hindered. You always have to put in the unless providentially hindered because then somebody gets upset and they... Unless providentially hindered. You are here because you are commanded to declare God's deliverance. And that is what you do. And that is what David does. And he says, I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. Yes, it is in my heart, but it doesn't stay there. It gushes out. I proclaim it. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation, from other people. So as a Christian, you have a positive duty to declare what God has done for you. And what God has done for you will shape the degree to which you desire to worship Him. Now that's what's happened, and that's David's life. But David finds himself in a predicament. So notice what he says in verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Now he is counting upon God's mercy, which has not been restrained. He doesn't hold back a little bit of mercy and give some. When God shows mercy, he opens the floodgates. David receives it. And that mercy preserves him. That love preserves him. But here's the problem, verse 12. He's in a current predicament. He is in a pit again. And every single Christian at some point in their life will find themselves in a pit. Maybe several pits. I was thinking about this as I woke up in the middle of the night. 
the various pits I've found myself in and thinking about how God has delivered and how every pit I was in actually wasn't the same amount of time. There were some pits that were months long, some that were weeks long, some that were years long, and they are pits. And David is again in a pit. And he says, the evils have encompassed me beyond number. This is not a small problem he's going through. So there's an external issue. And you see that in verse 14 and 15 as he continues. But notice there's something else that's going on. While he has confessed that God's mercy will not be restrained from him in verse 11, what does that give him the confidence to also confess in verse 12? That yes, he has external problems, but even though these problems are external, even though there may be wicked people making his life miserable, that doesn't mean that David is going to then say, well, this is nothing to do with me. I am sinless, blameless, innocent. I don't deserve anything. If you confess a great mercy, you can in the next verse say, my iniquities, my iniquities. Not others' iniquities, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. So what has David done in verses 6 to 8? He has said, I delight to do your will, O Lord. I have an open ear. What does he say a few verses later? My iniquities have overtaken me. And anyone who is a true child of God will not say that that is is a contradiction. They will say that is a reality of Christian living. Yes, I delight to do your will. Yes, my iniquities have overtaken me. I'm a sinner. And you can actually confess real sins, real iniquities, if you have confessed that God will not restrain His mercy and His steadfast love. The person who has a small God of mercy, a small God of love, is the person who's not going to be in any position to want to confess their sins. But you make God's mercy great, you can make your sins great, because your sins can never be greater than God's mercy. So notice what David does. Yes, he's got external problems. Yes, he's in a pit, but he's in the pit as a sinner. But he asks God to deliver him. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Verse 13, make haste to help me. There's something quite beautiful about this psalm, many things, but look at verse 1 again. You see what verse 1 says? His attitude at one time, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now he's in a predicament, and is he waiting patiently for the Lord? Yes. But does that lead him to indifference in his cry to God? No. Christian patience isn't indifference, a sort of resolution like, well, you know, fatalism, this is God's will, I'm just going to have to wait this out. That's not Christian living. You can be patient and yet beg God to deliver you. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Look at the last words of the psalm. Do not delay, O my God. Do not delay. I waited patiently for the Lord. Do not delay. I'm in a pit. Get me out while I wait. I think Jeremiah probably wanted to be delivered from that pit. 
When those rags came down, he didn't say, no, no, I will wait for a word from the Lord. I know what I'd do if I saw those rags. I'd be jumping on them and climbing up with every bit of strength that was left within me. I waited, I waited, I waited. Lord, come, Lord, come, Lord, come. And in the midst of his suffering, he still is thoughtful of others. Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. And then he returns to his predicament again. But as for me, in my current state, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. The Lord takes thought for me. God is not like a man. And sometimes we won't admit this, but we treat God like he is a man. So we look at this big world and we say, you know, there's a lot of bad things going on and I'm sure God's concerned with all of the murders and the rapes and the violence and, you know, I'm going to just sin, but I'm sure, you know, there's worse things going on and there's other things to see. He can't really be that concerned about how I live. When in actual fact, God's omniscience and God's power and God's eternity means that God is able to view your life as though you are the only person living on this earth. That as though every act you do, every thought you think, whether in rebellion directly towards God or anyone else, God knows fully even before you think it. And what is God's attitude towards you? It is the opposite of what it should be. The Lord takes thought for me. Is that a positive, hopeful statement or a statement of fear and dread? Well, look at the context. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me and therefore will destroy me. No. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, has a great book called The Vanity of Thoughts. And in this book, he talks about how God has more thoughts of mercy towards us than we have of rebellion towards Him. So the psalmist will say in Psalm 139, How precious to me are your thoughts. The Lord takes thought towards me. He thinks of me. And Goodwin adds, you began but as yesterday to think thoughts of rebellion against God, but his thoughts of mercy have been from everlasting and reach to everlasting. In other words, God is eternal and there has never been a moment in God's being and existence, if we may speak that way, where he has not had good merciful, loving thoughts towards you. God did never began to have thoughts of mercy towards you. He always has. So even before you came into this world and ever had a negative thought towards God or anyone else, God has been thinking kind, loving, merciful thoughts towards you. That's David's hope. He's in a pit and his hope is the Lord takes thought for me. Now, why should David have that hope? And why should you, 
if you confess all of those iniquities that have overtaken you like the hairs on your head, why should you think that God has good thoughts towards you? Where's your confidence? That they are good thoughts and not bad thoughts. And the answer to that is in the fulfillment of this psalm in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 6 to 8, are applied directly to Christ. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. That is the same way of saying, you have given me an open ear. You've given me a body that I may obey your will and keep your law. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I, and now the speaker is Christ. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the book of the scroll. Where did the obedience of the servant lead him? The servant who has an open ear. The servant who was taught morning by morning. Where did it lead him? It led him to hunger for 40 days and 40 nights. It led him to rejection by his family and disciples. It led him to ridicule by the Jewish people. It led him to discouragement when all of his disciples in John 6 went away from him after he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. It led him to temptation, to life-threatening situations. It led him to homelessness. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It led him to betrayal by Judas. It led him to Gethsemane where he's sweating drops of blood. It led him to the cross and it led him to the place where, in a manner of speaking, he could say, the Lord does not take thought toward me. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the flip side of David saying, but the Lord takes thought for me. Why have you forsaken me, God? And the answer is, in verse 17, so that I may take thought for these sinners, so that I may love these sinners, so that I may redeem these sinners and bring them out of the pit that they deserve to be in that I may bring them out of the miry bog, that they should be in forever and ever and ever. That is why I have forsaken you, so that I may love these sinners. And so David says in verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and Christ is able to also take those words to Himself. He drew me up from the grave. He drew me up from the pit. So what is the worst thing that could ever happen to a Christian in this life in terms of the pit that you have been placed in? The worst thing is you will die. But even in that pit, that is never the final word because God will bring you up even from that pit of destruction. He will raise you again like He did His Son. And so David's confidence is not ultimately in what David was able to do, but simply in the fact that the Lord takes thought for him. And so when you see those words, the Lord takes thought for me, that is basically saying, but the Lord loves me. That's why I'm confident I will be brought out of this pit. He has done it in the past. 
I have confidence he will do it in the future. So Christ even understands this. In John 17, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may become one just as we are one and that the world may know that you sent me and you have loved them, my people, even as you have loved me. In other words, God doesn't look upon you as you. God looks upon you in Christ. And that is why He has always loved you. That is why He will always love you. Because God can never ever look apart, look at you apart from His Son. So you can pray this prayer. The Lord takes thought for me. You can say, I'm the biggest sinner in the world. The iniquities of my life are more than I can number. But the Lord takes thought for me. The Lord loves me. And He will love me. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank You for David's hope. Because David's hope is our hope. And our hope is not in ourselves or in David. But in the one who takes thought of us each day now who desires to see us even when we're in the pit believing that we will be brought out and so we wait sometimes and we wait and we wait and yet we ask you to deliver us and come quickly not just out of our trials but even come quickly and redeem This world we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.